Hello and welcome to the Legal Edition. I'm your host, Attorney Mary Kay Loyan. Our show topic today, Stand Your Ground, Race, Gender, and Privilege in America. Our guest is Dr. Caroline Light. She is the Director of Undergraduate Studies and a Senior Lecturer on the Studies of Women, Gender, and Sexuality at Harvard University. Her book, Stand Your Ground, a history of America's love affair with lethal self-defense, a critical genealogy of our nation's ideals of armed citizenship. Let's welcome Dr. Caroline Light. Welcome, Dr. Light. Thank you for having me, it's a pleasure. Now, I read your book, Stand Your Ground. Um, it's basically a, about a love affair of America with lethal self-defense. It was an incredible book um, with references. I was riveted, truthfully. Thank you. So can you tell me a little bit about how you came about uh, writing book on Stand Your Ground and what this means to the American people? Okay, wow. Well, first of all, thank you. Thank you for reading the book. I really appreciate that. Um, when I wrote it, uh, when I started writing it, I was responding to my deep frustration and rage at the nation's continued racial and gender injustice and violence, not just in criminal law, but in practice. Um, in 2012, I'm sure you're aware of the case of Trayvon Martin being gunned down by a neighborhood watchman who then was acquitted of all crimes, right? At the, and the same year, there were two other black teenagers who were gunned down um, uh, one was Jordan Davis, uh, who was shot and killed in, in a car with friends when they were playing music. And um, a middle-aged white man didn't like the music that they were playing and, and was angry that they refused to turn it down. So shot and killed 17-year-old um, uh, Jordan Davis, so same age as Trayvon Martin. And also a young woman named uh, Renisha McBride. Renisha McBride was um, shot and killed in Detroit she was 19 years old. She'd had a wreck uh, and had pulled out, had, had, had wrecked her car, had gone to a house, knocked on the door to ask for help. And the homeowner who saw her brown face through the door shot her and killed her before even knowing what she needed or, or what she wanted. So these are three cases that all happened in 2012 that got me thinking about this larger pattern of weaponized self-defense in our nation. And, and so, yeah, I wanted to do a history of where we got these stain your ground laws. Where did they come from? They didn't just come out of nowhere in 2005, which is the first year that we uh, had a state, Florida, pass an official stain your ground law. Um, they come from a very long history of violence that is disproportionately concentrated into the hands of white, property, typically male people. Wasn't Florida the first state to pass a stand your ground statute? Exactly, this was 2005 that um, Florida passed the first of what would be called stand your ground laws. And this was a law that expanded the space in which a person is allowed to use lethal violence um, in as long as they reasonably perceive a threat. So it stretches the boundaries, selectively stretches the boundaries of the Castle Doctrine. And the Castle Doctrine is the doctrine based in 17th century English common law that says that if you're attacked in your home, 
you have no duty to retreat. In other words, you can meet force with force if you're in your home and you're attacked. However, the castle doctrine presumes that you have to retreat before you fight back with lethal force if you're not in your home. What stand your ground laws do is they remove this idea that you have to be in your home. In other words, the whole world can be your castle. Uh, stand your ground laws enable all law abiding citizens to meet force with force if they reasonably perceive that they are in danger. Now that term reasonably, is that a subjective standard or an objective standard? I'm so glad you asked this question. Um, this is ostensibly an objective standard. What does the average reasonable man consider to be a lethal threat to his safety? However, the way it plays out in actual courtrooms, um, from case to case, you can see that actually this idea of reasonable perception of threat is anything but objective. It's rather quite subjective. It depends on the judge, the jury, the prosecution, everybody in the courtroom, the, also the law enforcement who decides to make an arrest or not when there's um, a lethal encounter. All of these different subjectivities weigh on a deliberation of whether an act of lethal violence was reasonable or not. So I would argue that in spite of criminal law kind of priorities around objective reasonableness, that it, um, in stand your ground cases in particular, it's anything but objective. It's very much about the identity of the perpetrator as well as the victim. So in these stand your ground cases, it's what the, what the perpetrator reasonably believed that they were in, in, uh, in harm's way, that they were going to be killed. So kill or be killed. Is exactly. That right? exactly. You captured it perfectly. It's kill or be killed. And it's based on a snap judgment of whether a person is truly in danger of not just being killed, but seriously harmed, seriously wounded. And yeah, so it has to do with this idea of shoot first, ask questions later. So it's basically the perception, like in the George Zimmerman, Trayvon Martin case, we have an unarmed a black teenager who was minding his own business. He just happened to be in a neighborhood that uh, the neighborhood watch George Zimmerman uh, didn't feel comfortable seeing him in. So he pursued him. Is that, is, is that the correct set of facts? It, it is, but part of the issue with stand your ground laws and perhaps more generally with uh, justifiable self-defense, if the only witness to a lethal confrontation is the one who pulled the trigger, then all the weight falls onto that person to, to narrate what happened. In other words, in the courtroom, it all revolves around the only witness who happens to be the person who has the greatest stake in making it appear like his perception of threat was reasonable. So in the case of George Zimmerman, in spite of the fact that Trayvon Martin was a teenager, unarmed, carrying iced tea and Skittles, uh, doing nothing, minding his own business, in spite of that, George Zimmerman was able to claim that even after he instigated the lethal encounter that, that he was in danger, in fear for his life, that Trayvon, Trayvon Martin was going to kill him by beating his head against the concrete. So all these ideas about commensurate violence 
imminent threat, all of that went out the window because ultimately the jury was instructed um, that they had to uh, give the benefit of the doubt to George Zimmerman when he said that he perceived that he was in fear for his life, that he perceived a lethal threat in a 17-year-old, um, that he first approached and then attacked. So we can see how this is very problematic. Yes, um, dead men don't tell tales is basically exactly. where we're at. Yes, exactly. Dead teenagers don't tell tales. And, and, it's, and it's, we see this play out over and over again. Um, when we see other cases involving stand your ground where there is a white or white passing person who has used lethal violence against a person of color or against somebody that they can claim was, quote, a criminal threat or, quote, a thug. I believe George Zimmerman used similar language in describing Trayvon Martin as a punk or as a thug. In other words, he framed Trayvon as being a threat to the safety of the community when he when he. Um, uh, initiated this confrontation. Now, these these rules, these stand your ground rules, they're in many states, I believe, now. Yes. Um, but they were kind of sold, from what I could read, they were sold as a way to protect women from outside threats. Can you talk about that? Great. Yes. Um, I believe now there are some 37 or 38 states at depends on how you're counting them, that have some version of stand your ground laws. That could mean that they have an actual uh, legal code that says that you can stand your ground um, wherever you may reasonably be and meet force with force if you reasonably perceive a threat. Um, and some of those states have uh, stand your ground is encoded into jury instructions or case law. But on a state-by-state -state basis, when you look at the legislative conversations between policymakers and elected officials, so many people are promoting stand your ground as a way for vulnerable populations, including women, especially including women, to protect themselves from dangerous threats, especially for women to protect themselves from uh, sexual violence. So I find it cruelly ironic that these laws have been sold, have been marketed as a solution to women's physical harm by gender and sexual violence. And at the same time, when you actually look at how things play out in the courtroom, women are typically not acquitted or exonerated via stand your ground. You can see case after case where a woman has used lethal violence to deflect a threat especially when it's a threat from her largest statistical threat, which is usually a man she knows, including her own intimate partners or exes. Um, time after time, we see these women end up criminalized and going to prison to serve time for unjustifiable violence. So I, I consider that one of the greatest ironies of stay in your ground laws. They're promoted as a solution to gender and sexual violence, but so many women who use lethal violence against their largest statistical threat end up in prison. Now, there's been cases where um, women have been prosecuted and gone to jail. In fact, one that you outline in your book was about a female police officer. Do you want yes. to tell that story? Thank you. Yes. Um, Carol Stonehouse. And this is a case that happens prior to Stand Your Ground. So I just want to be clear that 
when this case happened, there were no official stand your ground laws, but there were laws governing justifiable homicide, especially in your own home or castle. Um, so Carol Stonehouse was a police officer and she had been dating a colleague on the police force and that relationship had turned violent and abusive. She had extricated herself from the relationship and uh, her ex-partner refused to let her go. He kept harassing her. He, he would even break into her home and destroy her property. He threatened her life multiple times. Uh, Carol Stonehouse ended up having to move uh, multiple times to try to find some safety from her attacker. It all culminated in a moment where Stonehouse's ex-boyfriend came to her house with a gun and threatened to kill her. He stood in the yard. He actually broke into her home at one point. She called the police and the police said something to the effect of, well, why don't you arrest him yourself? You're a police officer, right? No, it's completely ludicrous, but it's tragically so it because she did finally end up shooting him when he threatened her in her home and she killed him, after which point she was sent to prison. And she served many, many years in prison because the courtroom could not imagine that she truly saw her ex-boyfriend as a legitimate threat. In other words, what you said about the castle doctrine and about intimate partner violence is absolutely true. It's that our legal system can't quite wrap its head around the way in which women have to navigate these spaces of so-called private so-called safety in the interest of their own protection. So in this case, even though she was in her own home or castle, her violent partner could not be seen as a legitimate threat to her life. In other words, the courts don't believe women until they're actually dead. And by then it's too late. <laughs> And obviously, to, uh, to do anything to mitigate the situation. She so, was eventually exonerated. I will just say in the end, it was years and years later that she finally successfully appealed, but it was after multiple failed attempts to appeal her case. Um, and she spent so much time in prison as somebody criminalized for defending herself. So mm -hmm. we can see how our existing laws of self-defense, even before stand your ground laws, have never really been about protecting women. Now, the history of Stand Your Ground, um, it comes from the time of the Jim Crow era, from my understanding. Do you wanna talk about that? Sure. Um, I mean, I would say it goes back even further. The way, the way I try to understand the genealogy of it is that it is very much anchored in this idea of the castle doctrine which is an exempted space where you don't have the duty to retreat. So the way I started understanding uh, stand your ground laws and their precursors and the whole genealogy of self-defense was through the lens of the social geography of where a person is allowed to defend themselves using lethal violence. And it starts with the castle doctrine, which basically says you don't have to retreat from a threat in the castle. However, in the early 1600s, when the castle doctrine was instituted and applied, it applied primarily to homeowners, property owners who happened to be disproportionately white men. So from the get-go, the Castle Doctrine, as it was applied in what would become the United States, was never meant to apply to uh, individuals like indigenous people um, in the colonies, for instance. 
uh, indigenous people were not allowed to defend their homes or castles against the violence of settler colonialism, nor were women ever really granted the right to defend themselves from their largest statistical threat within that castle, um, because it was always the man who owned that castle. Now, the Jim Crow era becomes really important, as you asked, um, because I see that as a time period during which the erosion of the duty to retreat really took on speed. And we start to see instances where um, the duty to retreat is selectively undermined, primarily for white men, uh, property owners, but also for less wealthy white men who are claiming to defend themselves against what they perceive to be a reasonable threat. At the same time that that's happening, um, African-Americans, men, women, and children are being uh, violently targeted um, and lynched uh, during Jim Crow. And uh, certainly when they try to defend themselves and fight back, they are criminalized. There's never a question of whether African-Americans have a true legal right to defend themselves from white supremacist violence and racial terror. So there are multiple instances in our history where um, African-American people have armed themselves to resist white supremacist violence but time and time again end up being held accountable and criminalized uh, for defending themselves. I, I was particularly inspired when I was doing this research thinking about Ida B. Wells, who's a famous journalist and also known for her uh, incredible crusade against lynching, um, who basically stated that every black family needs to have a Winchester rifle to protect themselves from the white supremacy that the white state would not protect them from. And yet at the same time, each and every time when black people try to defend themselves from white supremacy, most often, more often than not, uh, the person who tries to defend themselves goes to prison or worse. Now, wasn't it in California, Ronald Reagan had um, had some kind of, uh, uh, there, was, there was a rule about, um, with regards to, was it blacks holding um, armaments? Absolutely, that's such a great case. This is a story in the 1960s and it's in the time of the Black Panther Party where the Black Panther Party had um, come together to resist white supremacist uh, violence, especially policing in California. And so um, in the late 1960s, um, armed members of the Black Panther Party would uh, brandish their firearms, meaning hold them out um, so that they were open carry, to signal to the police that they were armed and ready should the police decide to uh, violently attack Black citizens in the state. Um, and now I find it particularly interesting that it was Ronald Reagan, who was the governor of California, who at the time supported with everything he had a law to outlaw open carry. And now the law on itself, on its face, is it's neutral. It doesn't say anything about race, but it was designed specifically to disarm members of the Black Panther Party who were demonstrating while holding their weapons out in plain view. And so uh, this Mulford Act was passed to outlaw open carry of firearms. Fast forward, uh, into the 1980s, Ronald Reagan is elected as the very first president 
elected with the full support of the National Rifle Association, who by that point had become uh, very much in support of an absolutist narrative of gun rights, meaning that they at that point would not have supported uh, the abolition of open carry in the state of California. So I find this an interesting, uh, um, perhaps somewhat ironic demonstration of how these rules of self-defense are very fungible, especially when you consider the race of the people trying to defend themselves and from whom. Wasn't it also the NRA that um, put forth the narrative that women need to put uh, to safeguard themselves against um, uh, 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 men outside the home, that whole uh, uh, mantra of, you know, protect yourself because there's a criminal lurking behind every corner type of uh, situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's so many, there are so many instances where the leadership in the NRA has tried to promote this idea. So I would say starting with the late seventies, early eighties, and it really takes speed, you know, in the early uh, 2000s, where um, there's this idea that every woman should have a firearm to protect herself from dangerous criminal thugs. And the idea there, as you've mentioned, is that the greatest dangers to women's safety exist outside the home. It's not about what they experience in the home in the form of family violence or intimate partner violence, but rather criminal thugs lurking in the bushes who are threatening to harm or to rape them. And, and that has been a really powerful engine of armed citizenship. Uh, this idea that uh, armed womanhood is the solution to our society's continued gender and sexual violence issues. And yet now we have mass killings at every turn. So we, the United States is not getting safer, even though it's the most armed nation on the planet. Is that correct? Exactly. No, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I don't remember the exact statistics, but of uh, similarly, uh, economically similar nations, the United States is the most dangerous place for women to live. So this is a, this is a gender issue as well. This is about... Um, not only has the proliferation of guns, we now have more guns than we have people in our nation, more civilian-owned guns than we have people. And at the same time, we've become less safe. Um, we're literally killing ourselves with these guns. Two-thirds of our firearm deaths are suicides. Oh, so it's incredible. It's incredible to think about the extent to which we're literally killing ourselves. And then also we're killing ourselves by allowing for unfettered circulation of firearms and encouraging citizens to take up arms in putative self-protection. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Caroline Light, for sharing her research on the evolution of stand-your-ground statutes across America. I also want to thank you, our viewers, for tuning in. For more information on today's topic and our guest, visit us online at thelegaledition.com. And remember, this information is for general educational purposes. It is not legal or professional advice. And now you can download our podcasts and subscribe online. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter.